Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to Mentally Yours, Metro.co.uk's weekly podcast about all things mental health. I'm Ellen. And I'm Yvette. And today we're chatting to Laura Dockrill and her husband, Hugo White. Laura is an author and performance poet, and Hugo is a musician, formerly in the band The Maccabees. We're going to be chatting to them about postpartum psychosis. 2018, which was three years ago, um, after the birth of my son, um, Hugo and I had an extremely happy healthy normal pregnancy there was no reason why anything should go wrong there was no warning signs I was two weeks overdue and um went to go and be induced thought I'd sort of be coming back home um but ended up having a really traumatic chaotic labor um that ended in an emergency cesarean we were also told during the labor that our little boy was he'd actually been starving in the womb so when he came out he his skin was sort of hanging off him where he'd plumped up and then lost weight so he really wanted to feed he was underweight um and sort of called chronically small no one was really giving us much much information so I think it was just a really scary yeah as I said chaotic and traumatic labor um nothing really seemed to calm down from there onwards um I became overwhelmed with the feeding he wanted to feed all the time I was already sleep deprived I think I was scared and in shock from the labor itself um I'd had no history of mental illness so when I started feeling these initial feelings of panic and anxiety and um extreme insomnia I didn't really know what to do with all this information and I was asking for help but um wasn't really I suppose uh, guided in the right way because I didn't really know how you were meant to feel after giving birth you know I've never done that before so I was like well maybe this is just how everybody does feel and then my symptoms just began to get out of hand landing me in the psychiatric ward when Jet was just three weeks old. 
So talk to us a bit about when you say the symptoms got out of hand, what were the symptoms and what was it like when they when they got out of hand? What does sure. that mean for you? Uh, well, we were we spent a week in a maternity ward after because Jet and I were both patients in our own right. Obviously, I'd had a really um, intrusive and um, labour and intervention. So I was a patient, but as I said, he was also born small. So we were kept on a ward. If anyone, any of your listeners have been on a ward, they're really uncomfortable mm. environments. You're sort of sharing a really boiling hot space with lots of other people that are going through a lot of trauma themselves, uh, with each with their own experiences and issues. And uh, it's sort of a carousel of hell, really. Like one baby wakes up, one mother's crying, one dad's crying. Um, it's pure chaos, really. And um and I wasn't allowed to feed with jet or sleep, sorry, with jet feeding. So it was just a real, I mean, I was feeding for 24 hours straight and I just, I guess it started with like sort of crying a lot, feeling extremely anxious, but then feelings of dread. So that sort of, I guess I likened it to that, you know, when you're little and London's burning on, on a Sunday night is on TV and you know, you've got school the next day and you start feeling like, oh, doom, I guess. It was just that times a million. I started feeling like something really bad is going to happen. I couldn't quite put my finger on it. I was thinking, okay, Hugo was really amazing and reassuring my partner and he was just like when we when we get home everything will be okay it's just uncomfortable you know staying in the hospital with a newborn and everything will calm down but actually at home I sort of remember coming back to our house which we we love our house and it just felt like a you know empty holiday home it felt really vacant and and scary and weird and I was like this just nothing feels the same I couldn't it was difficult to understand because we it sort of felt like everything was in place you know Hugo was fine I was fine Jet was fine but I didn't feel like anything was fine, like something had changed. And within rapidly, within hours, I guess, well, certainly within days, uh, I was experiencing racing thoughts, delusions, conspiracies, extreme paranoia. I couldn't concentrate. I couldn't eat. I definitely couldn't sleep. We started going to the um, doctors a lot, you know, and I'm, by the way, I'm not here trying to call out the NHS. You know, I, I am so thankful and grateful for them, especially at the moment. But, you know, I, I was very, very unwell, but I was explaining my symptoms, I think, quite coherently and wasn't given a diagnosis. You know, my illness, postpartum psychosis is often mistaken for baby blues or postnatal depression but this wasn't that you know this was something else thinking that every ambulance was coming passing was coming for me every police car was coming for me and within you know a few days I was thinking that teddy bears had cameras in their eyes that Hugo was trying to steal the baby and basically was became extremely suicidal. Hugo can I ask what that was like for you I imagine that must have been really difficult and quite scary to see your partner going through that. Yeah, I mean, it was, yeah, it was terrifying. It was like, it was uh, partly because it, the symptoms really crept up. So like at the start, it felt like even I was questioning whether these things were normal, you know, whether it was normal for Laura to be feeling like this. And to and it felt to some degree like it might be, like she might not be sleeping and she would tell me, like she would be like to me, look, something's not right. I don't know what it is, but something's not right. And I would think okay, well, we'll try and work it out. But, and then I think is, but that's quite normal, probably, you know, probably it's all right to think, you know, something's not right after you've had a baby because it's and had a traumatic birth and all that stuff. But it just kind of crept up. And I think as the delusions started to creep in and stuff, that was when it start, started getting, becoming more obvious that something was definitely not right. Even at that point, I think I was still kind of searching for what this was. And 
and actually it took to the point of and we saw quite a lot of people and not we had we didn't know anyone who'd experienced anything like this and we hadn't heard about it um so really it was it took some a friend of ours like basically said have you checked have you heard of this thing called postpartum psychosis and looked up the symptoms and it was and I read this was a few days into Laura being re, like completely in delusion yeah and basically I read that read the symptoms and they just it was like reading the tick list of like this is a hundred percent it and the, as soon as I managed to speak to a psychiatric doctor they were just like you need to, immediately she needs to be in hospital and it's not safe to be at home so yeah I mean it was terrifying but you know for for me it was really trying to I was just trying to work it out you know um and obviously balancing every you know doing that all whilst having a newborn baby um is difficult for everyone what were the practical aspects you had to deal with at that time as, as well as the sort of difficult well, emotional side of things in that time I think I was like emotionally there wasn't I I don't know if I had any space to think about it actually emotionally for me um it was about practical trying to solve what was going on which which you know that uh, yeah I guess when we got to the point where it was solved it w- it wasn't solved <laughs> but it was like when we figured out and Laura had been admitted to the psychiatric ward and you know that was probably almost like as as kind of dark as that whole thing is that was a sigh of relief to that we'd even got to that stage and that she she was safe and we knew what was going on and we actually had the right type of care that um was needed rather than trying to work out something that was obviously way beyond what we could have figured out or helped with so laura once you did get to the point where you as a team kind of figured out what was happening what were the next steps what kind of care did you receive wow well I mean at this point I was so out of touch with reality I wasn't sure if I was being taken to a police station if I was you know incarcerated going to an asylum you know like I I mean I'm, I'm happy to admit it now because I've had to learn the hard way for myself but I would have really have thought all those, you know, the idea of a psychiatric ward seemed like a very frightening place. Now, having been there myself, I know that all the patients there, the service users are just like anybody. But when when you only used to your experience of mental health sort of being extreme, not even mental health, sorry, mental illness, being that that you see in, you know, horror films or Hollywood sensationalized TV programs, it was really scary. I, I really didn't know what was on the other side for me. But it had got so bad and so out of control that actually I was kind of willing to go along with anything um, at this point. My first feelings when I got to the hospital, it was like the middle of the night on a Saturday. And I mean, literally like 2am. I It was relief. That was my first thought. And I was with Hugo and my sister Daisy came too, and the baby was looked after by um, Hugo's dad. But my first um feeling was just like oh my goodness amazing I don't have to pretend anymore and that really does show me that the the shame is just as big as the symptoms of the illness Mm. itself you know I was just feeling like don't have to pretend that I've got this this mum thing together anymore I don't have to worry about the expectation and I can just tell these people openly that I'm really scared because I feel like I'm a threat to my own life and I never thought I would be saying those words and that 
because they're trained professionals, they were just nodding, accepting, being like, yeah, you're in the right place. And just that reassurance of people saying, you know, you're going to get better and, and you will. But I'm not going to lie. You know, I was given my own room and I, and they kind of gave me this program of group therapy and everything. So all these, you know, within seconds, I was being like, okay, trying to work out my surroundings. I was like, am I an animal that's just been unloaded into a new zoo? Am I at a spa? Am I at a rehab? Am I at prison? I really didn't know. Waking up that next morning um, was unlike any experience I've ever felt in my life, you know, just kind of waking up in this room. It was the first time I'd slept in about in well, yeah, in about three weeks properly. Uh, I had such bad insomnia. So from the medication, I just remember waking up in this room all by myself with this eye, you know, through this door, just watching me and thinking this really is rock bottom. You know, I just remember like crawling across the floor with this duvet wrapped over my head, just thinking, OK, well, I have to begin again from here. I remember one of the nurses saying, it's a Sunday t- today, so just chill. I was like, just chill. <laughs> like my brain was like, honestly, in hell. And then I did do the group therapy from the Monday I did. I was, as I was hospitalized in general psych, um, I was in group therapy with people with addiction, um, with, you know, personality disorder, schizophrenic disorder. Um, so I was, it took me a while, alcoholism, it took me a while to get my bearings and figure out why I was here. And that's why the book is called, I, my memoir is called, what have I done? Because I was honestly thinking that, what have I done? Why am I in this situation? But I, you know, I'm really pleased that I'm a goody goody. I did everything the doctors told me to do. I took to the medication extremely well. Obviously that it wasn't linear. There were times when I'd show improvement and then I'd sort of backtrack and accuse Hugo again, or come up with a new conspiracy. I was given an amazing um psychiatrist and when I came out there was um th- I was in, I hospitalized for two weeks and therapy and but then after psychosis which is quite common actually after a psychotic episode um I fell into a deep depression which in a way was worse than the psychosis because uh, there was that kind of sense not that anybody said this to me personally but I feel I felt it in a kind of mum guilt debt sort of depression has this horrible way of making you feel like you're in debt to everybody for everything mm. when you know I certainly wasn't going on a snorkeling trip in the Maldives um <laughs> where I felt like I had to sort of apologize you know I'd, I'd taken this time out of motherhood you know now come on chop chop get back to it and um the depression was just like dragging you know, I was on an awful lot of medication antipsychotics um antidepressants and sleeping medication so then I, but I insisted on doing all the night feeds. I wanted to change jet. I wanted to make sure I was completely hands-on. And and that's why the podcast is called Zombie Mum, because I was a zombie mum. So what helped me the most um, were, of course, having Hugo with me. You know, Hugo and I have been best friends since we were 14 years old, and we really relied on our bond and our trust to get us through. I just don't know if we'd have been together for the short time we had before we had him, if we would have survived this, because my conspiracies were just off the wall, you know, the trust that we had to rely on. He really knew me and um, I would throw all kind of conspiracies and delusions at him, even when I was recovering, you know, theories trying to unravel and unpick what had gone gone through with us and what had happened. Um, the more Jet got older and more responsive, you know, his first smile and his laughing, recognising me as his mum, needing me. You know, I remember the first time he bumped his head and he only wanted me to look after him. And I was like, oh, he does forgive me. And that's kind of what I was looking for from him was forgiveness. Um, CBT was really helpful. So 
so many of the things that they gave me, you know, the tools in the hospital, first of all, I was too unwell really to take any of that in. But there is unfortunately a, a large part of the recovery that you really do actually have to do yourself. You know, when people say, oh, you just get on the meds and then you're fine. It doesn't work like that. You know, you also have to do things for yourself if you're able to. And so I, I did, I, I've never, I know I taught myself CBT. I've, I drank books any book that anybody had written where they'd gone through something difficult and come out the other side memoirs and bios and and that just really um helped me to um spending time you know with my beautiful friends and family and, and raising jet and getting the rewards of that really really helped me but writing this book I put my first blog out when um jet was six months and um with mother of all lists Clemmy Telford's blog and that overnight went viral and it was just so ironic because as a writer you know I, all I ever wanted was my writing to connect and then it had and I couldn't even leave the house and I was like this is just like a sick joke really and but then writing the book that's when I really noticed I think Hugo and my family were worried because I, I was going back there and they I think they were scared that it would have been potentially triggering but I think then they started seeing the improvements in me I felt like I it really is it comes down to acceptance and mm. when I started fictionalizing this and accepting okay not trying to change it or rail against it or be angry at it just go okay this has happened and it really wasn't easy but you know we all made it out alive and having to process that um and that was the last part of the journey so I'm just so you know this is a triumph for me here to be talking about this to be making zombie mom to be doing all the cool stuff that's followed in in its um, wake I'm just really proud really that we've made it I'd love to talk a bit about kind of the process of writing the book and just starting to write about psychosis in general Mm. because I know at first you mentioned there's a lot of shame around it. Were you nervous at all to start writing so openly? I mean, the beautiful thing about losing the plot is that uh, you just don't care anymore. It's so liberating. I mean, yeah. <laughs> the amount of times Hugo's just like, oh, here she goes, wherever I'm going. But it's just, I, I don't mind because I feel like, you know, I'm not, I don't, if I get reject, you know, rejections happen in my work all the time, you know, and I, you know, as a writer or things don't go my way, if I trip over in the street, anything like that, I just don't mind because, you know, that's the brilliant thing. When you wave goodbye to shame, you realise that it's such a useless emotion that we really Mm -hmm. don't need. And the same for guilt. And once I let those two things go, that's when I really noticed my recovery happen because they were just getting in my way. They were total blocks. And, to think that Hugo and Jet would ever hold me accountable for this this illness that really wasn't my fault, you know, it really wasn't my fault. I did I did not ask for psychosis. Um, then that's when things started to get better. Writing about psychosis is really writing about it. It's like trying to bottle a night terror. It's like writing about. It's so meta. You're trying to tell a story within a story within a story. And and honestly, I remember thinking when your brain cracks in that way, you pull out things that you believe are relevant, you know, from a child, you know, I'd be like, of course I've got, you know, postpartum psychosis. I didn't look after my hamster vanilla when I was seven and this all makes sense. And the hamster was trying to give me a message. You know, if you told me at that time that I was a crisp, I would have definitely believed you. And this is this is the kind of really... Uh, niche sort of gaps that only if you've had psychosis you can fill in and it's to try and explain it to anybody else but it's I mean I liken it to like a Rubik's Cube where you feel like you've kind of settled on you're almost there with the getting a whole block you know side green and there's just one red block and then the whole thing will shift again just when you think you've got it 
throw into that the, as Hugo said, you know, the irregularities um, of a newborn, the unpredictability, the spontaneity, the expectation of other people, the shame, the guilt. And it's just a complete, you know, (laughs) recipe, well, for madness, really. I'm not surprised looking back that that happened to me. Oh, and sorry. So writing about it. Yeah, I I actually wrote the whole book on my phone um, because I had jet on my chest the whole time. And you know, I would never normally do that. You know, in fact, I probably would have that horrible, snobby, snooty author bone running through me. They'd be like, you can't write a book on your phone. And actually, I absolutely could. And, and having Jet on my chest physically in that time, Hugo was making music, so he'd be there. So I felt really safe and supported to go along with that. And I could just pick it up and put it down. I think something about writing on my phone made it feel really informal. And when I... When I, when, I, when I was thinking about who I was writing this for, of course, myself, my family, because I knew it was therapy and healing for me. I was thinking about the sort of person that might want to listen to this, who might just be needing that voice of comfort. And you probably would do that voice of comfort for a phone. So it it just made sense to communicate in that way. And that's what I think is so cool about the um podcast actually is that shorthand that you can like what you got you guys are doing now with this it's you can have that immediacy and, and build that bond really quickly that we which you can't do in many other forms I don't think you should be snobbish at all about the phone thing I was just listening <laughs> and being like that's so impressive that you were doing that you sort of feel though when you're an author that you you know I'm like oh why don't I use <laughs> yeah um so fancy, like fancy exactly, typewriter or exactly actually Hugo whenever you start a new project you always think you need a 400 pound moleskin <laughs> and I think no you don't need a moleskin use one of my exercise bicycle exercise books I think use one of my exercise books but um yeah there is that you're, <laughs> you're just exactly <laughs> waiting for that moleskin to arrive um could i ask you hugo um what did you find helpful during this time and what would have been helpful because i'd really like to get your sort of thoughts on how partners can support um the husbands or wives that are going through sort of difficult times like this psychosis something that doctors or friends or family could do that would have that could have helped you at the time, I've, I didn't really, I felt like I really struggled to find anything that I, because my initial things with it, like I said, not knowing anyone that had, had been through an experience like mm-hmm. that, I I found myself, you know, Googling postpartum psychosis and essentially finding things that nothing that, re- everything that felt terrifying and scary and nothing that really felt that relatable you know, I, at at the time, basically, I didn't I didn't feel like it was. It, I knew anyone or had anything I could relate it to anyone, uh, any sort of like peers, I guess. That um, and actually, that's been one of the things that's been amazing about Laura deciding to write about it and share the story is that it's actually made it. So many people have kind of come forward and like I had open conversations with even just myself and other partners who who have um, other people whose partners have experienced the same thing or have been through similar things um, have shared their stories and I think that's why the our involvement with APP has been amazing because they actually have a kind of a whole hub where it's created as like partner uh, support so so there is a place 
partners to go and be able to talk to people who have been through similar experiences as partners of someone with postpartum psychosis. Oh, that's great. Um, um, so the charity's action yeah, on I postpartum guess. psychosis, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So they, yeah, so they have like you know I've been speaking to other partners there, um, who yeah they're essentially even creating things like there's they've got a Facebook group, um, like a private face group, uh, Facebook group that's all partners that have experienced um, postpartum psychosis, so people can, you know, they can point people partners in the direction and they can uh, talk to people that have have experienced or are experiencing the same thing. Uh, from that angle, uh, which is pretty amazing. And actually, even through the charity, we've met lots of women that have had postpartum. We went for a, a lunch, you know, this is like, I, Laura hadn't even hadn't even completely recovered, you know, maybe it was a year in and we went, we went for, for like lunch or whatever it was, went for tea with like uh, 15 women that had all had postpartum psychosis. And like... Uh, and just like sharing the story, and as soon as anyone started telling the story, it was like everyone was like, "Oh my god, I, that was let's say, you know, mine was this, mine was that," and which is kind of amazing to to the, when you realise that those scenarios are out there, where mm. because you go through the whole thing, it's so easy to go through it thinking you're totally like the uh, you've mm. been singled out as the only people that. And no one will be able to relate to you and no one can relate to you and your life is messed up and everyone else's is normal. Yeah, perfect, whatever. But um, so, yeah, so there there, there basically is, and I think that's um, been partly why we've been really happy to be involved in talking about it and all that stuff Mm -hmm. is because it even to even to become a reference point for someone that you know like Mm. I was in a a band for a long time that actually even for me if if by me saying my experience of it and someone that was maybe at some point a fan of that band or like could see that I had shared the story of my experience and they could relate to it and that's kind of what I was looking for at those initial stages it's just something that was relatable that I could um find and and so yes I guess that stuff yeah it's really powerful isn't it to kind of look back and be like you guys are now doing the work that you wish had been there for you when you're going through it it's it's weird but it's it's really amazing nice thing to say that's really lovely I think um we didn't even realise this illness existed. I think when APP mm. asked us to be ambassadors, I do remember actually getting a bit emotional and saying to Hugo, you know, this illness that we hadn't even heard of, that we didn't believe even existed. Mm. I almost th- I, um, I felt like the time that the diagnosis had almost just been created to pacify me, <laughs> you know, like to kind of go, oh, they've just made this up for me or something. That's how poorly I was. And then to think that we've done, you know, yeah, been asked to be ambassadors and they are amazing. You know, the people at the charity there, they reached out to me and, and have supported me and after every interview I do or anything like that you know they'll always send us an email make sure we're okay and always offer their support and it just you know what's wild is just how many people have gone around with these maternal Mm. mental illnesses and just suffered in silence and not spoken about it and just got along with it with it and it's that low level you know illness that kind of just sits with you for years and you know people are going to play group or going to or doing their jobs whatever just suffering and that's what really breaks my heart because you do miss out on those years you know 
the thing that's quite I find quite amazing about it is that it's so it it kind of with postpartum psychosis the events of people's psychosis are like although they focus on different things but actually they're quite similar there's so many similarities to them in things that would seem on the surface to be so individual mm. and like um but actually it kind of follows narratives yeah there's a narrative <laughs> and maybe that's with um psychosis in general you know it does kind of have a a pattern of some degree so this is goodbye from mentally If you've been affected by any of the issues we've discussed today, you can give the Samaritans and Ring on 116123. If you like Mentally Yours, you can also find us on Twitter. We're at MentallyYRS. We also have a lovely Facebook group, which is just called Mentally Yours. And if you really liked us, you could do us a massive favour and give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It's much appreciated, uh, helps us, you know, continue doing what we're doing. So please do rate and review and check back in next week for more Mentally Yours. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.